Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast, podcast. Today's episode is dedicated to the Friends album, which turned 50 yesterday. I've got some snippets of interview, some of the music itself from the album. I found some covers of the songs. There's a bit of timeline, some contemporary reviews and my own thoughts all bundled together. It's a bit of a mixed bag, which incidentally is exactly how Elizabeth Rosenthal describes the album itself in her book, His Song. Thanks for the warm response to the Tumbleweed episodes. As I keep on saying before I do another 50th anniversary episode, I do have other ideas I'd like to try, but the milestones keep on coming. And I felt that this was one that deserves to be marked because it's the Elton John album that got away to some degree, for some fans at least. It still doesn't have a proper CD release, aside from being included in Rare Masters. It wasn't a part of the recent vinyl reissue campaign either. Even the single itself, Friends, it made number 34 on the Billboard singles chart, but it's never been collected on any of the big best ofs. And it's a shame because for me, it's top draw Elton. But as a result, casual fans and non-fans aren't likely to be aware of the song and it sits up there in the attic somewhat unloved as your song's forgotten sibling. Michelle's song for me is even better it's one of my favorite Elton songs of any era add in seasons for seasoning and we have ourselves a late summer salad of Buckmaster, Bernie and Elton perfect alternative to the hot pot of ideas that we were served with the Elton John album. And it's not just that side of Elton, the energy of Tumbleweed rolls on through this one as well, with the deeply funky Can I Put You On and Honey Roll. And there are also some darting looks towards the next studio album in Buckmaster's Four Moods. So this album is many things at once. It's an album that serves to anchor the other albums around it. It's Elton John in a bit of a holding pattern. It is a mixed bag. It's all of those things. But most importantly, it's an important document of where Elton, Bernie and Buckmaster were at immediately after their wild initial success in L.A. The album was recorded in August and September of 1970, and it was released on Paramount Records on the 5th of March, 1971, in the USA at least, I think April in the UK, as Elton's fourth album, or his third album in the US. Elton released a lot of music in late 1970 and 1971. Some of it was planned, like Tumbleweed and Madman, and some of it wasn't really a part of the primary plan, like Friends, as well as the album that followed it, 171170. The film is based around the burgeoning love between two teenagers who come across one another at the Paris Zoological Park. There's Michelle, 14 years old. She's recently been orphaned and uprooted to Paris. And there's Paul, who's a 15-year-old English boy who also lives in Paris with his busy businessman father. Both are marginalised. Paul's father is getting remarried and he wants him to share his room with his perfectly square new brother, while Michelle finds herself transported to her cousin's apartment in Montmartre, where she encounters the lecherous, controlling Pierre, and then she's forced to tidy up after one of their parties where they've been smoking, drinking and dancing awkwardly to obscure early versions of Elton John songs. Together, they decide to run away, taking the train to the unspoilt marshlands of the Camargue to the strains of Michelle's song, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you a bit about the director. That's Lewis Gilbert. He was the producer as well, so he put up the money for it. He'd been on a bit of an upward swing in the second half of the 60s. He'd struck gold with Alfie in 66, 
and he was then invited to direct You Only Live Twice in 67. And he was chosen for Oliver in 67 as well, but he had to pull out for contractual reasons. And the film that he ended up making instead, which was The Adventurers, was widely panned at the time, and it's since been reclassified as an unintentional comedy. He then lost out on The Godfather. Paramount only offered him a minimal budget for it, and he ended up passing on it and filming Friends instead, based on a story that he'd set out himself. The story of Elton and Bernie's involvement goes back as far as Ray Williams' Liberty ad in 1967. This comes via the second excellent Keith Hayward book called From Timpan Alley to the Yellow Brick Road, Ray is in there, quoted as saying, I got to know John Gilbert, Lewis Gilbert's son, through the advert that I'd placed in the NME when I was looking for talent for Liberty Records. From the advert, we got the band Family, who John was producing, and Liberty released a semi-successful single in October 1967 titled Seen Through the Eye of a Lens, John took them to Warner Brothers reprise, but we kept in touch. A continues when I was managing Elton John Gilbert came to see me and asked whether Elton would be interested in making an album and creating the soundtrack for a film that his father was doing although it was low budget 250,000 pounds Ray recalls he was impressed with the story and he talked to Elton and Bernie who were up for it Cue some tricky negotiations with Dick James because Paramount wanted to have the publishing rights to the music. That's normal practice, apparently, in soundtracks. Dick did manage to get his way, though, and the collaboration went ahead. According to the Claude Bernardin and Tom Stanton book, Rocket Man, Elton and Bernie signed on to the project on October the 9th, 1969, under its original title, which was the intimate game. Elton's diary in the Captain Fantastic Scraps book mentions Elton going in to see Dick about a possible film song, but that's on the 9th of December 1969. Maybe that refers to something else, who knows. They were only ever contracted to provide three songs for the film, namely Friends, which was used in the opening titles, Michelle's song, which was used during the trip south, as I said before, and Seasons, which is used quite a bit later on in the film when they are no longer just friends. Only later on did the studio push for more material from the team because they wanted to put together an album-length release. Here's Elton talking about the first lyric that Bernie wrote for the project, Michelle's song, and this interview is taken from an open-ended interview with Elton John, which was a disc that Paramount sent to DJs around the time of the release of the soundtrack. Uh, well, there <laughs> was an amazing thing there. A Paramount approached us, well, John Gilbert and Lewis Gilbert, the director of the film, approached us to do it. And we said, um, oh, well, can we have a script? So Bernie had the script. And at that point, it was called um, some, some Ridiculous Title. And Bernie wrote one of the songs before he'd ever seen the film. He just read the script and wrote Michelle's song, which is one of the main songs in the film. I never read the script, they so I'm very lazy, and I didn't read it. And so the first time I actually sort of saw it uh, was after we'd written one of the songs, Michelle's song, and it seemed to fit very well, and they couldn't believe that it fitted well without seeing the film. And as soon as we'd seen the film, Bernie went, and went away and wrote the songs very quickly. We, all, we did it in about three weeks, which was the quickest we've ever written. 
So, Elton, tell me, how does Michelle's song fit into the film? Well, the film is about two young kids that run away from Paris, and Michelle's song comes at the point where they're sort of uh, on the train going towards the Camargue in the uh, south of France. The song really sort of conjures up the mood of they've just run away from home, and uh, it's just sort of, it's it's a sort of descriptive song, it's a sort of narrative song, it tells a story of them running away. Here's a portion of the demo of Michelle's song that was sent on to John and Lewis Gilbert and I've segued it into the song itself as it was released on the soundtrack album. Cast a pebble on the water Watch the ripples gently spreading Tiny daughter of the camel We were meant to be together Time it takes to grow up If only we were old enough And they might leave us both alone So take my This is the only song for friends that I'm aware of having a demo. Hopefully we can have it released at some point in the future. As I've said, I adore Michelle's song. It's such a simple idea from Elton. It's got total honesty in the writing and in the performance. It's charming to hear Elton singing about love, forbidden love, at that, at this moment in time. It's like he breathed everything out at the troubadour and that this is a moment of rest and stillness before he would go on to take ever deeper gulps of whatever was coming to him. Musically, it's one of the most Elton John songs there is. There's a simple rhythmic first to fourth reflex in the intro and in the verse. It goes between F and B flat. We've got Typical Elton thing, chords being held over descending bass notes, as well as some general shuffling around the home key with minor seconds and thirds, adding a bit of movement. Then, with that same rhythmic reflex continuing, there's a shift to the fourth at the front of the chorus, which is where he sings, take my hand, and then to the fifth, C. And then it takes us back to F, four, five, one, four, five, one. It couldn't really be much simpler. Then comes the enveloping seventh chord, E flat, which is on the second, no one's going to find us, which shows us the way out of the chorus. Melodically from Elton, it's just as uncomplicated, all of the right notes, all of the right places. Elton's agile, angelic voice cutting through the landscape. It's what you might call 
a supportive Buckmaster arrangement. No fireworks at all. You might even call it predictable. Certainly, the way the drums come in for the second verse is very reminiscent of your song and Come Down in Time. And it's got lots of other flavours of those two songs as well, like harp, flutes, it's got a busy rhythm part, and it's got a prominent oboe line. Still, though, it's not schlocky, there's no syrup. Paul's arrangement opens up the aperture and it renders the song in widescreen and it highlights the pastoral elements of Bernie's lyric. A lot of Buckmaster's material for the film is in F major, which is the same key as this song, Friends as well, as well as being the same key that Beethoven used for his sixth pastoral symphony. And I think that's something that wouldn't have passed Paul by. It seems so natural for Bernie to be writing these innocent lines about love, and nature, and dreams of the future, because those things had been his bread and butter over the last three years. It's no surprise that Bernie takes a cinematic approach here. He pans away from the ripples in the water to take a look at Michelle, the tiny daughter sat by the pond at the dawn of a new life. Paul, the male lead, realises how perfect what they have is, or rather it would be, if they weren't so young. The demos actually got some different lyrics, not in the section that I played, but later on. The second verse, sleeping in the open, see the shadows softly moving, and, and the following reference to the southbound train, that's all missing. Instead, it goes straight into the familiar we learn to be so graceful watching wild horses running and from those agile angels we knew the tide was turning then there are two more lines that weren't used in the end he says oh you knew it in your body for the feeling came on slowly that before the snowflakes touched the ground your burden would be heavy i imagine that this was dropped because the song comes too early in the film to be referencing Michelle's pregnancy, or the winter for that matter, but Bernie did keep the final word heavy. And it's interesting that the horses get a mention in there, but not the heron at this stage, since they both feature in the film itself, which had already been shot. And I like to picture Lewis Gilbert or John Gilbert sending the lyrics back to Bernie with a scrawled note on there saying, good, but needs more heron. It appears to me to be musically related to Michelle's song, so I'll move on to Seasons next. Seasons comes deep into the film after Michelle has become pregnant, after Paul has met the fantastic Joan Hickson in the bookshop, after his search for work, and directly after they gatecrash the wedding and make it their own. Any listener who's heard my episode number 28, which is about alternate versions of Elton's music, will know that the film uses alternate recordings of all of Elton's songs, except for the title track. You can hear them in that episode, they're all in there, but as a taster, here's the film version of Seasons. For our world the circle turns again Throughout the year we've seen seasons change It's meant a lot to me to start anew Oh, the winter's cold, but I'm so warm with you Out there there's not a sound to be Seasons seem to sleep upon their words As the waters freeze up with the summer's end Oh, it's funny how young lovers start as friends Yes, it's funny how young lovers start as friends 
Here's Elton again from the open-ended interview talking about the recording process for the album. We literally did it in three weeks and recorded it and dubbed it onto the film and everything. It was done in between the time I came over to the States the first time and came back the second. Uh, so I'm glad I, I haven't seen the film yet. I must admit, I'm really looking forward to seeing it because it would be very strange to hear your actual music played in a film. He makes it sound quite effortless, but the recording of the album was actually quite problematic, as described in Elizabeth Rosenthal's book. She says that the original attempt to record the soundtrack at Olympic Studios was ruined by film people, quoting Bernie there, who kept telling the musicians what to do. She says that the finished product was recorded at subsequent sessions at Trident, Bernardin and Stanton go a little further and they state that the original Olympic recordings were actually used in the film. For Michelle's song, at least, there's some logic behind there needing to be two versions because the film breaks the song into short segments and they needed to record these as a whole with clear beginnings and clear endings rather than trying to splice them out from longer versions. Here's what Keith Hayward says in his second book. Paramount only wanted song segments to last 20 to 30 seconds. And what Elton and Bernie hadn't realised was that writing a film score was entirely different from writing hit songs, and it required significantly more planning than Elton and Bernie's writing style allowed for. Some songs had to be timed to perfection to fit the sequence that they related to in the film, which was achieved more by trial and error than planning. Neither Elton nor Bernie particularly enjoyed the process. Elton said as much in his memoir recently, and it would be almost 25 years before Elton went anywhere near celluloid again for The Lion King. Seasons itself is perfectly placed in the film. It's not spring or summer anymore, and there's a sense that time has passed. Some of the early innocence has burned off, and it's time to hunker down. I love Bernie's opening line, for our world, the circle turns again, and how Elton brings that to life. I'd say that melodically, it's not a sister to Michelle's song, maybe it's its first cousin. Just like that song, we go from the first to the fourth, back to the first in the verse, and then the sevenths and the fifths are introduced in the chorus, and it's all tied together by a somewhat similar, simple melody line from Elton. It is in a different key though, it's in G major. And before we hear the song, the, the themes from the song are regularly raised by Buckmaster in the sequences leading up to it. And it comes as a relief when you finally get to hear Elton's voice singing it. It also repeats at the very end of the film. It's a lovely song, but it is somewhat slight being just a verse and a chorus, and it needs a long introduction from Buckmaster to bring it up to regulation length for the album. Oh, it's funny how young lovers start as friends. Yes, it's funny how young lovers start as friends. Let's rewind to the very beginning of the film, where we find the title track, Friends. Like Michelle's song, as I said, Friends is in F, so it provided more pastoral source material for Buckmaster to work with in his incidental music in the first half of the film. Keith Haywood says that Elton insisted on the lead song being called Friends, despite the original title for the film, which was The Intimate Game. Here then is the dedicated mono mix of Friends, which was released as a single on uni on the 10th of March 1971. There are a couple of clear differences to the album version. It's got much louder acoustic guitar, especially evident in the first chorus, and louder shaker in the second chorus. It actually sounds like a cabasa to me. It's not exactly a sonic delight in this transfer, but it's interesting enough for me to want to spoil your enjoyment of the song with. I hope the day will be a lighter highway For friends 
As I said in the intro to this episode, this is a special one. It's pure 1970, pure Elton, pure Bernie, pure Trident, pure Gus, pure Buckmaster, everything we love. And on top of that, we don't have to share it. It's just for fans. You do feel, Bernie-wise, that he's having to grapple with the demands of the commission He sequences the syllables together in a pleasing manner, but he's not really finding a great deal of depth here. It just does the job narrative-wise, and it also provides some hooks for Elton to hang on to. Joining your song, Come Down in Time, and now Michelle's song, this is another Buckmaster arrangement that catches in the second verse when the drums and the bass are introduced. According to the liner notes on To Be Continued, it's Barry Morgan and Alan Wayhill again. I love the little dance that they do. It adds so much sophistication to the track. Buckmaster's put in some regal sounding horns which add weight and obviously his strings add depth. It's one of Buckmaster's finest. It's a simple affair from Elton musically. I'm sure you don't want me to go through the chords again. It's more of the same though. The verse is in F and there's a chorus that takes you from B flat back home again. But there is a subtle difference in that the first chord of the verse is a really unsure G minor. And similarly, the first chord of the chorus is an almost triumphant E flat, E flat 9. Both of these inflections give the song a sense of searching, of growth and movement. The single is Elton's shortest at 2 minutes 22, actually from Denver to LA is shorter, but does that count? I don't really think so. It didn't have much of an impact after the success of your song. It didn't place at all in the UK and it only reached number 34 in the US. It did attract some overseas cover versions though, including a really rough sounding version by South African band, The Square Set and what's basically a sound-alike version, but in Italian, called Amici, by The Pleasure Principle. It was played live as well. It entered and it left the set list in 1971. Once Davy joined, it was played at least once more um, during the 1974 Here show from the Royal Festival Hall, but that version, unfortunately, didn't make it onto the Here and There album when it was reissued on CD. Elton picked it up again one more time in 1999 during a solo tour. 
Here's a short segment of Elton rehearsing the song with Dean Nigel, which was recorded in early 1971 by the London weekend television programme Aquarius. Um, it was a biopic, and it was memorably subtitled Elton John, Mr. Superfunk. And I've segued their rehearsal into the live recording of the three-piece tackling the song in Japan later on that year. Making friends. Making friends for the world to see. Let the people know. Let the people know you got what you need. Without when that hand, you will see the light. If your friends are there, everything's all Mr. Superfunk himself. That rather odd moniker came from a Melody Maker article that was dated the 24th of October 1970. The full 30-minute profile can be found as an extra on the Two Rooms DVD if you want to see the whole thing. Speaking of October 1970, there was a gig in the UK in that period of time between the American jaunts, and it was on the 2nd of October when the three-piece supported Fotheringay at the Royal Albert Hall. My friend, I know you've suffered Although you are still young Why was it you would not take help From any According to the Keith Haywood book, Elton got the gig as a result of the Warlock session, which had featured musicians who would go on to join Fotheringay. Haywood mentions Jerry Conway, the drummer, and Jerry Donahue, the guitarist. Elton had played them some of his own laid-back sounding material during those sessions, and as Donahue tells Haywood, they loved it enough to suggest to Sandy Denny and Trevor Lucas, who was a partner and another member of the band, that Elton would be a perfect support act for their show. Although they noted that Elton didn't have much of a following, they went with a suggestion. Here then is a snippet direct from Jerry Donahue talking about the night of the gig, which comes, well, not direct, it's via Keith Hayward. He says this, when Sandy went backstage after the Elton set, she was really shaken and making comments like, how are we supposed to go out there now? She was even mindful not to do the gig. She was still very shaken during and after the gig. And we thought then what a dreadful, dreadful mistake we'd made. Something traumatic happened that night, but no one blamed us at all for it as everyone could see what had happened and felt sorry for us. It was unfair because everyone knew what sort of band we were. Normally, our set was like a piece of magic, but that magic was compromised big time by what had taken place before. In his heart, I think Elton probably knew that he was not what we were looking for as a support, so it was a bit unfair of him. But he was thinking of himself, and he needed to show a room full of people that he was a star too. I can understand his intentions, as it probably helped his career that he was in front of a packed house at the Albert Hall, so he just took control of the audience. We sounded weak compared to what they'd just witnessed, but Elton had probably played one of the best rock shows ever. Elton didn't stay after the gig, and it may have been because of the reaction he'd received, and he probably didn't want to make it worse for us. Elton talks about the gig in his memoir. He says, 
They thought they were getting a sensitive singer-songwriter, the perfect complement to what they did, which was wistful folk rock. And instead, they got rock and roll and Mr. Freedom clothes and handstands on the piano keyboard. They couldn't follow us. We had so much adrenaline and confidence. Of course, when the adrenaline wore off and I realized what we'd done, I felt terrible. Sandy Denny was one of my heroes, an amazing vocalist. It was meant to be their big showcase gig and I'd ruined it for them. I scuttled home, absolutely mortified before they came on stage. As I've said on here before, Elton had at least a foot in the folk scene in the UK during the 60s and the first half of 1970. This was the day he kicked it away. It seems as good a time as any to talk about Honey Roll and Can I Put You On, the songs that were used sparingly and incidentally in the film in their different versions. And these were contributed by Elton and Bernie to make the soundtrack album a more favorable proposition for record buyers. These are both described as tracks that were intended for the next studio album, but whether or not they actually would have made it onto Mad Men is another question entirely. It certainly would have made the album a less ornate and a more raucous affair if they were on there. Here's Elton introducing Honey Roll on the Paramount interview disc. Oh yeah, this is the, a song from Friends called Honey Roll, which is sort of my sort of little tribute to Fats Domino, really. Um, it's not, I don't know what you think of it, but it's, uh, I quite like it anyway. If you want to try to ride my on your pony Loosen up my tie to help me breathe Insisting that I pay my alimony seems to be dismissing this one. Maybe it would have struggled to find a place on Madman, but it is a classic rock and roll number. Three piece plus Caleb, lovely bit of reverb on Elton's voice, call and response vocals, bongos, double track sax, oh look, double track sax. Actually, the sax is fine. It's played by Rex Morris, who would have been known to Gus from his days at Trident, working alongside Mike Vernon. It's puzzling that it was never played live, especially since we know that they did work it up. Again, here's a snippet from the 1971 Aquarius special. really well in the set but I suppose they had enough material that was stronger and they didn't need it. There was actually a cover of this song released in Japan in 1971. It's by a musician called Mao and he was in a band called Sons of Sun. That's all I've got on him and it sounds like this. (laughs) 
誰もが知ってる楽しい遊びだよみんなで愉快にやってみようね僕についてみんなで来てごらんよいつもと同じあの調子でね Come on, do the roll, do the roll, この僕と Come on, do the roll, do the roll, この僕と My honey, my honey, my honey, my honey Come on, do the honey roll, この僕と僕は君にとっては Mr. Funky 歌って踊って楽しく暮らす君はおしゃべり僕はファンケモンケ君の笑顔が僕の悩みを消す It's pretty loose, isn't it? It's taken from his album One for Elton John which features 10 covers of Elton's songs including Friends itself This cover is hilarious. I love all the half English, half Japanese in there. And they just had to keep the funky monkey in. Elton and Bernie loved that little phrase too. Certainly enough to have at least one t shirt made with those words written on it. I know this because it was one of the lots of memorabilia that Bernie auctioned off along with his lyrics back in 2018. Can I put you on? The other lone song on the album. Would become very well established in the live repertoire and way before its release. It's so familiar, indeed, in its live incarnation that the studio version almost feels secondary. It certainly does for me, I don't know about you. Another great Bernie title, this one. He does his old trick of taking a well known phrase, at least in the UK, you're putting me on, which means you're having me on or you're pulling my leg, and then turning it around to mean, I don't know, like, can I get a rise out of you? Can I get you to buy my tat? It doesn't really have any meaning that way round, but it's fun to sing and it's hooky. Which is a bit of luck because we get a full two minutes 45 of it at the end of the song. It's an energetic bit of British gospel. It's not a million miles away from Hey Jude. And there, of course, are some very familiar names among the backing vocals. They are Lisa Strike, Leslie Duncan, and Madeline Bell. The story itself from Bernie is very English, very northern. Got a van coming round selling fancy city nonsense, sweets, or candy, as Bernie puts it, which brightens the lives of the labourers who otherwise would have nothing but coal dust on their minds. I love what Bernie writes. There are some classic lines, like a blind street musician, I never see those who pay. That's a really sharp little idea. And the description of the singing salesman itself, the man in his trilby hat, With the whiskers spread like wings, it's so vivid and funny. But most of all, I love the percussiveness of the phrasing that Elton gets here. Like, 
uh, like when he sings, and a second cousin works the pits in Newcastle on time. It doesn't quite have the angularity in this version that we hear in the 1711-70 version, but that's okay. It's a different animal. It's a little bit more country. And I'm happy, of course, because we've got Caleb here twice, two guitars, double the fun. One of them's a slide guitar. Elton just brimming over with these heavily syncopated rock and country rock songs in the early 70s. You've got this, Take Me to the Pilot, Bad Side of the Moon, Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, Amarina, Amy, Susie Dramas, Teenage Idol, Benny and the Jets, to a degree. And then they did sort of start to dry up as the machine and the sound got bigger. And I don't really know why. Maybe it's just not the kind of thing that he was interested in writing after 1973. But to me, it's a shame because this is the vibrant, exciting side of Elton that I really love. The British public got an early taste of this song on the 31st of December 1970 on Lulu's TV show Into 1971, which was broadcast between 11 and 11.50, just up until the bongs. The three-piece shared the bill with Blue Mink, Alexis Corner, Traffic, The Who and Cat Stevens, among others. And they got two tracks. I don't know how they fitted all this in. They did Your Song and then they did this somewhat truncated version of Can I Put You On? I can't mention Cat Stevens without making some sort of reference to Honeyman, which was the song that Elton and Cat Stevens recorded together. But it isn't actually a part of this story at all. It was recorded at Pie Studios on the 30th of January. 1970. So I guess we should have mentioned it in the first Tumbleweed episode. Anyway, I'm sure I'll bring that in sometime, maybe in another collaborations episode. I do really enjoy the song. So now I'm going to come to Paul Buckmaster's music for this album. But before I do, let's get an idea of how the album balances out time-wise. The five Elton songs, not including Seasons Reprise, come to a total of 19 minutes and 20 seconds. And I think this is somewhat generous because Seasons itself has got a 2 minute 20 Buckmaster intro. But let's call that part of the Elton song. There are four Buckmaster pieces that don't feature Elton. Variations on Friends, Michelle's song, I Meant to Do My Work Today, and four moods, and together these make up a little under 17 minutes of the album. And as I said, I'm not counting seasons reprising either camp because that's just 1 minute 33 of wasted wax. So the balance is just about in favour of Elton, which is probably why this does feel like an Elton John album when you listen through it. to Buckmaster's contributions. Um, for the variations and for I Meant to Do My Work Today, we don't really get to hear a great deal of the true Buckmaster voice. He's doing a job, and that job is to provide orchestrated music based on Elton's themes that serves to complement stretches of the film that are low on action and rich with the beauty of the command. As you can read in the second Keith Haywood book, Paul spent some time with John Barry during this time to learn what he could about writing and arranging for film. And I imagine that they will have talked about the need to provide scores that serve the film and don't draw attention to themselves. Certainly Friends, in contrast to You Only Live Twice, for example, it's a slow film and it inhabits the French countryside and it would have been very wrong 
for Buckmaster to have done anything other than to add some brush strokes into the landscape. The variations, for me, they're nice to have, but they're not Buckmaster at his most dynamic and exciting. By contrast, Four Moods, which as far as I can tell doesn't feature in the film at all, must have been just written for the soundtrack album, Four Moods is essential Buckmaster. It starts with this wild, angry motif which rises out of the flatlands. This is then followed by a second figure, fugue-like thing. It's also quite worked up and angry. Then the first motif repeats and then the second figure again. And here that one is the second time. think it's possible to interpret this music in line with the film. You can have these two motifs representing Paul and Michelle, I don't know in which order, and specifically the states they find themselves in at the beginning of the film. And then by repeating them, we maybe get a sense of how stuck they are. What comes next, the second mood, is a more baroque sounding, more developed fugue. Maybe here we're hearing the two voices of Paul and Michelle coming together and we can hear them covering some ground together and trying to find their balance. And there are moments of concord and then some highly discordant notes as well. Certainly Paul and Michelle weren't without their conflicts in the first few months of their time in the cabin. So if my theory is true and the moods do tell the chronological story of the film, then we would want the third mood, the longest of the moods, to reflect, in part, the natural unfolding of Michelle's pregnancy. And indeed, we do have the seasons theme here, which is used at the same point in the film. There's a soothing hush about this whole section. It's warm and welcoming, just as it should be. The fourth mood starts off with what sounds like a reference to the first motif before leading into a dance with some almost Indian-sounding extreme vibrato in the strings. Thank you. 
The way everything is played in unison also adds to the Indian flavour to this section. Perhaps a dance is appropriate here since there is now a tiny person in the equation, someone to have some fun with and someone to teach some new moves to. The dance is repeated a second time as well, but it's got a little bit more complicated this time, possibly as the external world and its expectations start to come into play at the very end of the film. Okay, so maybe I'm reaching a bit here. I do think it's a great piece of work by Buckmaster though, and it does bear deeper analysis, maybe by someone a little more informed than me. It certainly deserves more than the one-word comment that it gets in Elizabeth Rosenthal's book, which is Somnolent. Buckmaster would return to film several times in his career, including several false starts. He contributed some music for Nilsson's Son of Dracula in 1974, and then famously worked with Bowie on the initial unused soundtrack for The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976. Less well known is the fact that he failed to fulfil a commission to come up with a soundtrack for Flash Gordon, in 1980, he turned up at the recording studio with almost nothing written and a full orchestra there waiting expectantly. And his first true success in film didn't come until 12 Monkeys in 1995. As for the film itself, well, I'm not going to go into it in any great detail here. It has let me say, some very warm user reviews on IMDb, mostly from people who saw it in the cinema at the time and who were entranced by its slow beauty. Of course, it is problematic, as we say these days, as it's got underage nudity in it. But read those reviews and you'll get an idea of how the sensibilities have changed over the years. Not that it opened to rave reviews or anything like that. It was broadly slammed. Roger Ebert gave it one star. He wrote, The archness of their innocence towards sex is finally just plain dirty. And the Chicago Tribune gave it one star as well. He called it a saccharine story that made the audience feel like peeping toms. Variety called it patronizingly voyeuristic you get in the general tone here the new york times called it exasperating but they did praise the ending and other reviews were maybe a little bit more positive but on the whole it was not a warm reception the film won best foreign film at the golden globes somehow and it wasn't the end of lewis gilbert by any means he would go on to direct two more Bond films and also Educating Rita and Shirley Valentine, which is reportedly the Queen's favourite film. As for the soundtrack album, which is actually what I'm here to talk about, it received a nomination for Best Original Score Written for a Motion Picture in the 1972 Grammys, but it lost out to The Godfather, ironically enough. It also received a 1,000-word rave review in Melody Maker. And in there, they say that it stands up favourably as the logical progression from Tumbleweed Connection, and they call it the most important new album from anyone in the current period. The reviewer, who says that he's listened to the album more than 50 times, calls Friends, the song, the perfect follow-up to your song. He says that Honey Roll is robust with an outstanding vocal performance. He says that the tour de force of the album is Seasons. Can I Put You On throbs like a steam hammer and is almost a certain hit single. And so too is Michelle's song. And he even finds a few words for four moods, stating that few will remain unmoved. It will surely sell a million copies, and it will probably be played more often than Tumbleweed Connection, which for many reasons doesn't really measure up to this new effort. Elton John has done it again. Once again, he has succeeded where so many before him have failed. And yet again, he demonstrates that he may very well be the most important new solo rock artist since Bob Dylan. Some strong meat there. I certainly wouldn't place the album above 
Tumbleweed, or above any of the other classic era albums, it's simply lacking in songs. But what is there is full with beauty and heart. Buckmaster's contributions give it space, and the presence of the two rock songs adds some much-needed energy into the mix, channeled directly from Mr. Superfunk himself. And it did sell well, as predicted by the Melody Maker. It was certified gold in the US in April 1971, which means that it shipped more than 500,000 units. But mostly, this was made up of advance orders to record shops. Elton himself has noted that it ended up being a regular site in bargain racks for years to come. The much-hated front cover may have had something to do with it. The pink monstrosity was designed for Paramount by Rudy Mazur, um, who designed the Rolling Stones' tongue-mouth motif, apparently, or maybe he didn't, no one really knows. But Paramount insisted on their cover, despite Elton's protestations that his team would be able to do a much better job, and I'm sure they would, and certainly I would much rather have a gatefold version of Friends with its booklet on my record shelf. And as it is, the packaging is just lean and ungenerous, and it does nothing to encourage it into our hands. It didn't really have its day again until 1992 when it turned up on the Rare Masters collection. On there, if you look at the track listing, it's been resequenced. In an East End Lights interview, which John Higgins conducted with Bill Levinson from Polygram, who'd coordinated the release, Bill says that they'd found two sets of tapes for the album with different sequences, and that he simply selected the one that worked better on CD. There is another CD release listed on Discogs, by the way, including bonus tracks like Honeyman, but this is definitely an unofficial release. It's a shame that it's not going to be getting the 50th anniversary treatment, but it's not a huge surprise. It's not a favourite of Elton's. As Bernardin and Stanton point out, the soundtrack isn't something that Elton and Bernie would have opted to do if they'd been approached to do it in August 1970, but still, I for one are very glad that they did do the project, because where would we be without these songs? So why don't we all have our own celebration of the album and give it another spin together? There are a couple of covers that I was mulling over, choosing between, to close this episode. One is a cover of Michelle's song by Ray Frechet, who's a country musician in the States. It's actually rather good, but it's already up on YouTube and you can go and seek it out if you want to. Instead, I've got for you this incredibly overblown cover of Seasons that was released in the UK by Rich Fever in June 1971. Rich Fever were a group rather than a man, I think, and they had three singles out on Parlophone in 1970 and 1971. And aside from that, not a great deal else is known about them. It seems that they were dropped after covering this song. Their cover of Seasons was arranged by Andrew Price Jackman, who also did arrangement work for Aisha Bruff during that period. And interestingly, he would go on to arrange Written in the Stars for Elton and Leanne Rhymes 28 years later. Small world. And for our world, the circle turns again. I'd like to thank... Peter Thomas and John McEwen for their help and their patience with me when I was putting this one together. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I'd be very pleased to hear from any of you if you've got any comments, corrections, commendations, or anything else that begins with C. The email address is eltonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and here's Rich Fever.
Start a new 